0: that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so, he shall, go. so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, All his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Good to see all of you. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome all of you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we worship together, especially if you're here at the invitation of one of our members who might be a friend of yours, a neighbor, a sibling, a co-worker. Thank you, thank you so much for accepting their invitation And we hope and pray that our time together will not only be educational, but also encouraging and empowering, especially if you are considering the claims of Jesus and whether you are investigating the claims of the gospel. Uh, Would you please join me now in bowing your heads with me and praying for God's blessing. Let's pray for the Lord to bless our time together. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. For as your prophet Jeremiah has once declared, your faithfulness are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Father, we pray that you would indeed remind us of the faithful love that you have given to us through the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we come to you hungry and eager for you to feed us from the word today. God, we do ask also for those among us who are visiting us today, those who are considering the claims of Christ. Lord, would you speak to them and make it clear to what it is you want them to hear today. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know, you can't explain, but you feel it. you felt it your entire life. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? These iconic words come from the Hollywood blockbuster movie, The Matrix, and if by chance, none of you have seen that movie, come, especially for whatever reason, if you haven't seen this movie, go see it, it's, it's an amazing movie, but if you've never seen this movie, nevertheless, you are going to recognize these words coming out of the mouth of Morpheus, the character in the movie who says it, because... This is something that all of you recognize. This is something that all of you resonate with. Do you not? Of course you do. All of us in here at one point in our lives have felt this inner disturbance that something is off. Am I right? Morpheus in that quote describes it as the splinter in your mind. C.S. Lewis has once referred to it as the inconsolable longing of the human heart. The Germans actually have a word for it. It's the word Zinzucht. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, but that's apparently how you're supposed to uh, pronounce it. Koreans have a word as well to describe this nebulous inner sense that something is off, and it's the Korean word han. Have you guys heard that word before? Han. It's very interesting. Back in 2011, the LA Times wrote an article about this very notion of the Korean conception of han, and I thought it would not only be interesting but also help set the stage for our message by reading to you a small snippet from this article. Follow along as I read it with you. Quote, For most of his life, Record store owner Kim Ji-yoon has battled against a feeling that he has trouble describing, a mystery of the soul, a puzzle that many say helped define their culture, the ineffable sadness of being Korean. The concept is known as Han, and for the nearly 50 million South Koreans, it's as amorphous a notion as love or hate, intensely personal yet carried around collectively, a national torch, a badge of suffering tempered by a sense of resiliency. As a Korean, it's embedded in your DNA, said the ponytail Kim, 46, pensively stroking his thin beard. It goes far beyond everyday emotions like happiness or anger. It's a blockage, something that's tangled up and cannot be untied, end quote. We're continuing our sermon series to the Old Testament Book of Ecclesiastes, and I've entitled the series, Reality Used to Be a Friend of Mine. And the point of this series is to look at the various things that King Solomon, the author of this book, Lists out for us as to what causes us to do this so often. (sighs) To sigh. To breathe out that breath of air that reflects our frustrations, our sense of fed upness, our sense of fear and failure as we live in a world that seems so against us. And today, Solomon is going to address this issue, this thing that some people call Han, some people call Zinzuk, some people call the splinter in your mind, whatever you want to call it. But, Because this is such a very vague, because this is a very cryptic and nebulous experience and fully understanding and capturing with our thoughts, Solomon is going to couple it with a concept, with an issue that many of us are very, very familiar with, something that we think about over and over all the time, and that is the topic of money. Money. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you from our text today. First, I want to talk about the shock of Solomon as he observes those with money. The shock of Solomon as he observes those with money. Number two, we're going to talk about why those with money are the way they are. Why they act the way they act. Number three, how Jesus prevents us from being like those with money. So first, the shock Solomon experienced as he observes people with money. Number two, why they act the way they do and how to make sure through Jesus we don't act that way. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the shock of Solomon as he observed those with money. Read along with me our passage again, starting in verse 8, where it reads this. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. Solomon starts off our passage by telling us that we shouldn't be, quote, amazed by something. Amazed, yeah. That's such an interesting translation of the original Hebrew because the original Hebrew word that's translated in our passage as amazed is the Hebrew word tama. Tama, which literally is better translated as shocked, terrified. Horrified. It's not very clear why our particular translation really reduces the shock value of what Solomon is saying by translating it so mildly as, quote-unquote, amazed. Because what Solomon is trying to convey in this verse is the utter shock that he has, the horrificness that he experiences as he observes certain kinds of behaviors in his observation of the world. And the inevitable question is, Solomon... What did you just witness? What did you observe in your observations of life to which you are so horrified and so turned off by and so shaken by? Read again what he says in verse 8. He says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Here's Solomon is describing a situation where the poor are being oppressed and victims are being denied justice. Now, if that interpretation is not very clear to you from what we read in verse 8. Let me read verse 8 to you one one more time in another translation. This is the New American Standard translation of our passage. It says this in verse 8, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, what did he say? Do not be shocked at the sight. There it is. Do not be horrified. Do not be shocked at the site. Solomon is trying to teach us something, and the way he's trying to teach it to us is by describing a situation where people with power, specifically financial power, are using that to hurt people who are already hurting so that they can have more finances going their way, right? That that is what the context. Now, when many of you hear this, you're thinking to yourself, "Uh, Solomon, you don't need to teach this to me. You don't have to Tell me this is how the way the world works, because I already know the world works like this. I know we live in a world where the rich and the powerful manipulate the system. They corrupt politicians. They corrupt law enforcement officials. They corrupt corporations so that they can have more advantage and further disadvantage those who are already suffering in this world. I already know, Solomon, that this is how the way the world works. I read the news. I look at my Facebook feeds and what's trending in the world. I know this is how it is, and I'm not shocked. Here's my question to you, Solomon. Why are you so shocked about it? Now, if that is your reaction, if that's your response to what we just read in verse 8, let me just say this very kindly. You have no idea what you're talking about. And the reason why is because you're not understanding what Solomon is really saying in verse 8. Solomon is not trying to teach us something so blatantly obvious as the fact that the rich and the powerful oppress the poor. Right? He's not trying to teach us something that blatantly obvious. Instead, he's trying to teach us the underlying issues that drive the rich and powerful to treat others the way that they do. Read again with me verse 9 where he writes, But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now again, not the most helpful English translation to what Solomon is saying in the original Hebrew. So one more time in a more recent translation, verse 9 really says this, Even the king milks the land for his own profits. Let me ask you a question. What are we saying about a person when they have a milking tendency, when they're milking something? What does it mean when a person is being described as someone, man, that person is always milking things all the time? Aren't we saying that this is the kind of person who tries to take advantage of every possible situation so he can maximize the kind of experience that he wants to get out of a certain situation? For example, let's say you have a person who has a milking personality, a milking tendency, and it's his birthday. Instead of being content of going out that evening with close family and friends for a nice dinner in the city, no, a person with a milking personality, he wants a birthday office party where his co-workers take him out for lunch at a nice restaurant close by at work. And not only that, that evening, he wants his close friends, he wants maybe his wife or her husband, you know, to take them out to a nice exclusive place in the city. And furthermore, later that weekend... They want their family to really circle around them, shower them with gifts and say what a wonderful addition they are to the family. I mean, a person who is milking something is leaving no stone left unturned. A person with a milking tendency wants to extract every possible enjoyment of experience and acquirement of things that you can get out of a situation, right? Right? Well, that is what Solomon is trying to get at. That is what he's trying to teach us. Solomon is trying to teach us something about the human heart, something that is utterly shocking, and it's this. The human heart has a tendency to always milk things. Or if I could put it this way, there is in every human being an irrepressible and insatiable desire to have everything that you could possibly have and to experience everything that they could possibly experience. In fact, this desire is so great to where even if you were the king, even if you had the most wealth out of everyone else in the land, even if you were technically at a place where you should be theoretically content, where you should be able to say theoretically, I've had my fill, I've had my portion, I've had enough. No, no, no. Solomon says even if you were the richest person on the planet, you would still say, I want more. Right? That's shocking. Solomon is saying, that's shocking about the human heart. How is it possible for a person who has more money than he can even spend in his entire lifetime and yet still pursue more money? How is it that a person who purchases more homes than they could ever live in and yet they keep buying more real estate? How is it possible that a person purchases more cars than they can even drive and yet they still want to get another car? How is it possible that people have more clothes, more shoes than they could ever possibly wear, and yet their wardrobe keeps getting bigger, bigger, and bigger? Solomon is trying to educate us something utterly shocking about the human heart, and that is the human heart has a voracious hunger to where it never will say enough, enough. And the question that we're left with is why is the human heart like? Why does there seem to be in the human heart kind of like this proverbial black hole that just wants to suck up everything in a certain situation, surrounded by certain circumstances to where they say more, more, more? Why? The answer leads me to my next point, why those with money are the way they are. Take another closer look to what Solomon says in verse 12. We read this, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now that is a very interesting statement. Here is a rich man who just gorged himself with a full belly, which presumably is the most delicious and most expensive meal a person could ever eat, and yet he's unable to sleep. Why? Well, maybe he's guilty of what some of you are so guilty of all the time, which is he just ate too much, right? And because he ate too much, the acid reflux, the heartburn, and the, and the painful gas is what's keeping him awake at night. Maybe that's what's going on. No, I don't think that's it. Okay, well, maybe it's this. Maybe after eating this succulent meal, it is a reminder of all that he could possibly lose, and he's getting anxious, and he's worried about not holding on to this vast amount of wealth to where he can never eat a meal that he just had. Maybe he's worried about losing it all, and that's why he can't sleep. No, I don't think that's it either. Well, what is it, Pastor John? I'll tell you what it is. Here is a man who just had one of the most delicious, expensive, and exclusive meals a person can eat. A kind of meal that most people cannot financially afford, a kind of meal that most people cannot socially access. And yet, after eating and gorging the best food that is currently out there, there is no better, he still says to himself, I'm still hungry. I still feel empty. I still feel like there is a lingering hunger that has not been satisfied in any way whatsoever. Have you ever had this experience? It's up, you're up late at night, maybe you're studying for an exam, maybe, you know, work is busy right now, and you have to stay in the office really late, and you have a bad case of the munchies. I mean, you are hungry, and so you go into the kitchen, you open the fridge, fill two capacity, maybe more, with food. Right? Such as last night's leftover Thai or maybe the steaks that you purchased at the grocery store the day before. Or maybe the massive cake that you bought at the bakery earlier that afternoon. And you look at all this food and the thing that you're thinking at that moment is, there's nothing to eat. Have you ever had that experience before? But of course you're starving and so you eat something. Maybe you eat the leftovers. And the physical hunger is gone and yet to your shock and amazement and confusion, you're still saying, I'm so hungry. I'm still hungry. Have you ever had that experience? Well, that is what Solomon is describing here in our passage. Solomon is describing a situation where a rich man who just had his fill with delicious food, and yet he's still hungry. He still feels there's something missing inside of him to the point where he feels utterly dissatisfied. But here's what's even more infuriating for this man. He has no idea what he's hungry for. He has no idea what exactly this missing link or piece is inside of him. This unnameable, inexplainable, unidentifiable hunger is just gnawing at him, and it's frustrating him to the point that it bothers him to the extent that he cannot sleep. He cannot be at peace because there is this rumbling within him to where it says, you need to deal with this hunger. In his critically acclaimed book, Henderson the Rain King, author Saul Bellow writes about the character of Eugene Henderson. Eugene Henderson is a very wealthy, very attractive, and very well-connected social person, right? And yet, even though he has many resources at his disposal, beauty, wealth, networks, he still cannot shake off this inner nagging voice that is constantly saying to him the phrase over and over in his heart, which is, I want, I want, I want. Take a listen as he describes one of this incident that happened to him one afternoon he writes this quote there was a disturbance in my heart a voice that spoke there and said i want i want i want it happened every afternoon and when i tried to suppress it it got even stronger it said only one thing i want i want and i would ask what do you want but this is all it would ever tell me it never said a thing except i want i want i want at times i would treat it like an ailing child whom you offer rhymes and candy I would walk it, I would trot it, I would sing to it or read to it. No use. No, no. Through fights and drunkenness and labor, it went right on. In the country, in the city. No purchase, no matter how expensive, would lessen it. Then I would say, come on, tell me. What's the complaint? Do you want some nasty whore? It has to be some lust. But this was no better a guess than the others. The demand came louder. I want, I want, I want, I want. Your attention, please. The reason why the human heart is like a black hole to where it's always demanding more, always wanting more, is because the human heart has no idea what it wants. One more time. The reason why the human heart is like a black hole to where it's always claiming for more things, to where it's always demanding more things, is because it has no idea what it's actually hungry for. Think about it. What do you do? when you're trying to find something to which you have no idea what you're looking for? How do you find something when you're not even sure what you're looking for? The answer, you go through a process of elimination. A process of elimination, you know, that arduous process where you list out possible things that could be the answer to what your question is, right? And you one by one cross them off So that you could eventually, hopefully, find what it is you're trying to figure out. But here's the thing. A process of elimination is very expensive. It's very expensive. Just ask scientists, you know. If you ever talk to research scientists, they'll tell you that in order for them to do their research and to do their science, they need money. They need lots of money, which is why a lot of research scientists spend half of their career practically writing up grant proposals because they're trying to hit up on some very wealthy people and say, hey, can you give me $5 million so I could fund this research? The point is, searching for the answers of life can be very expensive. And friends, that's also true for you when you're trying to find the answer to your life, which is why you are the way you are with money, which is why all of us are the way we are when it comes to money. This is why even for those of you who make enough money to meet all your current needs, it's still not enough for you. This is why those of you who plan to have a certain amount of money to where you think you'll be content once you have that amount, won't be when you actually make that amount. Because no amount of money will be enough to get you to fund this personal research project that you are on and figuring out the answer to the most haunting question that haunts every single one of us, which is, what am I hungry for? No amount of money can fund the extensive research that is required to investigate every possible thing that you need to consider and investigate. Money is, in this culture, seen as the way of accessing the possible answers to the most important question that haunt mankind the most. Our culture has this assumption that money is the way of accessing the answer to the most crucial question that we as human beings need answered for our sanity and for our flourishing. That's how our culture believes money and because that is the case, you will always want to have more because the more money you have, the more opportunity you can to investigate the things of life to see if maybe, just maybe, I can finally cross this item off and move on to the next in the hopes that I'll finally find the answer to the hunger that I have within me. To finally figure out what I'm hungry for. But take a listen to what Solomon says will happen to you when you see money in this way. In verse 13 to 14, read it with me one more time. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Solomon says right here that when you think of money the way our culture thinks of money, which is the means of finding the answer to the most important question, is that you Will end up in a bad venture or some translation puts it you will end up with a bad investment why two reasons reason number one we see it in the second half of verse 14 he is a father of a son but he has nothing in his hand in the ancient world the most important relationship that a man had was his relationship to his son why because his son would be the primary recipient of everything that this man acquired and built with his toil and with his ingenuity which means his son is the only one who will be able to carry on the legacy of the father, which means the most important priority that a man had was to make sure that he had a healthy relationship with his son so that when he died, his son would take on the task of continuing the work that his father did. But here Solomon says that when you are so obsessed with trying to fund this research of figuring out the answer— You're like a mad scientist. You're so consumed with your investigation of life that you end up not even making time or priority to the people that should be your greatest priority, and you end up with a severed relationship with people who you're called to love and to invest in and to pour into. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, Solomon says, hold on, it gets worse, because he tells us a second reason that happens to you, why it's a bad venture when you see money this way. We alluded to it in the first point in verse 8. You become a person who does what? You oppress poor people, and you deny justice to those who are being unjustly condemned. Now, some of you are hearing that, and you're like, wait a minute, Pastor John. Look, I'll grant maybe that because I'm so consumed with making more money, that maybe I neglect relationships that I shouldn't neglect, but I think it's a little bit of a stretch for you to say that I am like those people who are like the corrupt politicians, who take advantage of their resources so that they can further stick it to those who are suffering already. Surely, I'm not nearly as bad as those people. I don't have that kind of social clout. I don't have that kind of cultural power to be that kind of oppression. Think of that for a moment as you consider this quote from theologian Augustine. He writes this. That bread which grows stale in your house belongs to the hungry. That coat which you preserve in your wardrobe and never wear to the naked. Those shoes which are rotting in your possessions to the shoeless. That gold which you have hidden in the ground to the needy. Wherefore, as often as you are able to help others and yet refuse, so often did you do them wrong. When you see money as the primary means of accessing the most important question in life, which is, what am I hungry for? That obsession will lead you to not only neglect your loved ones, but also contribute to the systemic problem of oppressing the poor and denying them justice. That is what greed does to you. And so the question that we're left with is, what can we do about it? How do we make sure that we are not this kind of people in this world? For all we do is neglect our loved ones and bring more curses to those who are already suffering. The answer leads me to my final point, how Jesus prevents us from being like those with money. Read again verse 20 with me where Solomon writes these words. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Here, Solomon makes a startling claim. Here, he says God is able to do what no thing, no experience is able to do. God is able to keep you occupied with joy in your heart. That word occupied is very interesting because it can mean many things. Two definitions I want to draw your attention to. The first definition of occupied simply means to fill up, to make full, to completely saturate, right? A second definition of occupied also means to be so fixated, to be so focused that nothing and no one can take your attention away from it. You combine those two definitions, and it's easy to understand what Solomon is saying in our passage about God. And that is simply this. God is the answer to the question that haunts every single person on this earth. What am I hungry for? Solomon says, you are hungry for God. You are hungry for God. For God. And guess what? Jesus says the exact same thing in John chapter 6, starting in the 32nd verse. We read this. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What is this unnameable, undescribable hunger that is lingering even when we've had everything we could have and experienced everything we could experience? Solomon says it's God, Jesus says it's Himself. Put those together and the claim is pretty obvious. Jesus is God and meaning you are hungry not simply for a generic God. You are specifically hungry for Jesus Christ. And here's what's so amazing. You do not need money to get access to this answer for life. You do not need wealth acquired in order for you to claim this truth. You don't need money to have access to Christ because the gospel tells us that Jesus himself, he paid the high cost that was necessary in order for you to have him. He himself paid the exorbitant cost that it was required for us to have access to the answer to the question that we need answered the most. What am I hungry for? I'm hungry for Christ. How can I afford this Christ? You can't. But the good news is he's already paid it for you. Why? Because the gospel goes on to tell us, because of our sins, because of our rebellious nature, we will never be able to pay that high cost of acquiring this Christ, this hope, this alleviation of the gurgling hunger deep within 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in the 18th verse, we read, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Come on back. The gospel, not money, is the means in which you access the answer to the question we're all haunted The way we alleviate this unnameable, uncertain hunger is through the cross. It is through Jesus because he is the one to whom we hunger for and he is the one to whom we get access to by the work that he's done on the cross on our behalf. And when you understand this and when you believe it by repenting of your sins, turning away from them and submitting to your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know how you end up? You end up like the person in verse 12 of our passage. Let's read verse 12 one more time. It reads this. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. Here is a man who is not wealthy at all. He's a laborer, right? He is poor. And yet he is able to do what the man who's getting more and more wealth for himself cannot do. He is able to sleep. Why? Why? Well, presumably because he's not bothered like the greedy person. Why is he not bothered like the greedy person? Because he knows what exactly he's hungry for. He knows what it is that he's wanting to consume for satisfaction. And he knows money cannot get that for him. He knows that he is hungry for God and that you cannot get God through money. You can only get God through his mercy and grace. And so he doesn't fall into the trap of thinking, hey, I need to fund this research to figure out what this unnameable hunger is because for him, he knows, he names what that hunger is. I am spiritually hungry for God. And because that is the case, he doesn't waste his time pursuing frivolously an experiment where he is so consumed of raising funds to pursue this experiment. He says, know what? I am going to pursue of living a life of obedience to God. And what does obedience to God entail? I'll tell you what it entails. It entails what God says in His Word. And what does God say in His Word in order for us to obey Him? Well, He gives us commandments like, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Fathers, raise your children up in the ways and admonition of the Lord, not leading them into wrath. And furthermore, God says in His Word, Remember the poor. Defend the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. Remember those who have been forgotten. Protect those who are being oppressed. When you are consumed with money, the consequences are you neglect your loved ones, you hurt people who are already hurting, but if you are consumed with Jesus, you bring blessings to your family and you fight for those who cannot fight for themselves. That is the fundamental difference in which you Turn out in terms of who you pursue. Are you going to pursue God or are you going to pursue money? Why do you think Jesus says in the Gospels, a man cannot serve two masters? You cannot serve both God and money. We're going to talk about that passage a little bit next week in next week's sermon. The point is, is that when you are focused and centered on Christ and knowing Christ and being changed by Christ, You are a source of blessing in the world. You are not a curse. But conversely, when you're not centered on Christ and when you're consumed with money because you think money is the means of figuring out what this unnameable hunger is, all the world is worse off because of you, starting with your family. So the question that I want to leave with you this afternoon, NCF, is have you finally figured out what you're hungry for right have you finally accepted the truth that christ is the answer and therefore rested in this obsessive pursuit to get more money to fund like you're a mad scientist the answers to your life or are you content that jesus is the answer and therefore you're ready now to be a source of good in this world starting with your own The choice is yours, and I implore you, don't squander it away by frivolously pursuing research that will take you nowhere and will not expose any truth that will get you one step closer to satisfying that inner hunger. Look to Christ and be, for Christ, the joy and hope of this world. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about this sense of hunger that we have this sense in which we are missing something in this life father the temptation the temptation is is to search for answers that are out there that require money and as a result lord we are very tempted especially in this city is to make that our singular pursuit in the hopes of getting closer and closer of making that eureka discovery that discovery that we think is going to forever give us hope and peace Father, help us not fall into that deluded rabbit trail of a pursuit, but instead help us to rest firmly at the foot of the cross so that we can look to you as our rest, as our relief, as our bread, as our water, so that we never hunger again, never thirst, thereby causing us to be so confused. Father, would you help us, especially those of us here who are chronically struggling with this unnameable hunger, Lord, I pray that today's message would clarify and focus what this hunger is, identifying it for them so that they would finally rest in you, Jesus, and therefore begin a new journey of being a blessing to the world. We ask that you would hear this prayer for Christ's sake, for we pray in his name. Amen.